coming up on Art Palace. Here he is, he's taking on the challenge of himself depicting, representing an image that was essentially created divinely. Welcome to Art Palace, produced by Cincinnati Art Museum. This is your host, Russell Eyrig. Here at the Art Palace, we meet cool people and then talk to them about art. Today's cool person is Peter Jonathan Bell, our new associate curator of European paintings, sculpture, and drawings. Today, Emily was telling me that she she just saw that MoMA started a podcast and she was like, yeah, it's really similar to ours. And I was really? like, well, we'll just we'll just whether it's true or not, we're just going to pretend they ripped us off. And, yeah. you know, imitation is the greatest, form, greatest of flattery. form of flattery. Yeah. yeah. So we'll just pretend that's the case, <laughs> whether it's real or not. Uh, well, you got there first. Uh, yeah, I think we, we were doing it first, but I was like, oh, OK, yeah, I guess the first thing I wanted to talk to you about is is. How did you get here? How did I get to Cincinnati, to the Cincinnati Art Museum? Yeah, I mean, you could also tell me how you got here this morning, but uh, <laughs> like, well, <laughs> if that's more interesting, I but drove I, down Madison. No, yeah, I was thinking, uh, I was thinking in the big picture. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, I well, uh, in the big picture, I studied art history um, as a undergrad and um, and really loved what I was doing and pursued it in graduate school and. Uh, ended up working at, at the Metropolitan Museum and, um, and then was looking to expand, uh, expand my area of, uh, you know, w what I was working on from, from a single media or a couple of media to, to, a, to a larger purview and saw that this, uh, that, uh, Cincinnati, uh, was, had a job opening and that, um, it's an amazing collection, and I jumped at the chance. So uh, what were you doing specifically at, at the Met? At the Met, I was, res I was responsible for European sculpture. Uh, I shared responsibility for European sculpture with, another, with one other curator, um, and I was mostly focused on Italian and Spanish sculpture from the 15th to the 19th century. Mm -hmm. um, and I also... I also worked on ceramics from those cultures and glass a little bit, but it was mainly, you know, it's, 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 it's one of the great collections of sculpture, uh, out there. And so it was sort of a, a full-time job just to, just to, to work with that side of the collection and acquisitions and exhibitions and research and so forth. Um, but you know, I, as I, I trained, uh, as an art historian, you know, you train more broadly than one, one area, and um, you know, my several of my loves fall outside of that area. So it was really great to uh, to be presented with the opportunity to work across media, mm -hmm. by which I mean with paintings, with drawings, uh, as well as three dimensional art, uh, and to do it at a really high level that the Cincinnati Art Museum collections represent. Yeah, I was going to ask you if that. It I'm assuming you just kind of found yourself in that area at the Met because that's what was available, uh, working on that particular area, or is that was that a particular passion of yours? Well, there there was some 
serendipity uh, to it. There was okay. some some good timing. Uh, I think there always is in such a a field with such a few number of jobs. It's such a small yeah. focus, just as you know. Let's call it art history for uh, old master art history in general. But but I had been working with sculpture um, for a couple of years prior to that in the trade, working uh, in a gallery, um, uh, researching Renaissance and Baroque sculpture, and so I sort of. And I was developing an idea for a PhD topic, a dissertation topic that uh, is, was also is, was also about sculpture. And so, but at that at that very moment, then along comes an opportunity at the Met where one of their longtime curators was looking to do um, a catalog of the Italian bronze sculpture that he had been uh, sort of thinking about but not working on on and off for three or four decades, and so. Uh, I was hired to uh, to help get that project started. Um, so there was good timing, but it, it was also a topic that was very close to my heart and and to my studies. Yeah. So one of the things I, I was uh, reading the City Beat article that just came out, mm. um, and they do hint at the the sort of uh, something I didn't realize until I. I probably started here is that curators get irritated when people misuse the word curate (laughs) 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 that that that's like a little bit of like a thorn in their side is is how often people misuse the word curate yeah Um, and and they they kind of say in in the article like well you know there's so much more than we do so I guess I, I'm I'm kind of curious, like, uh, what what is that so much more? You know, what what is the big picture that maybe people miss? Right, right. Um, no, that was an interesting uh, sort of angle that Maria took on that article, um, and I guess I I was thinking about the same thing when people were talking to me about the article, uh, and I guess I've grown a little bit uh, immune to yeah. that. Uh, you know the the sort of widening significance of that word, let's right. say. Um, but, 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 you know, her point was, is, is really, is valid and it's, and you know, it's, it's, it's um, flattering to have someone sort of help point that out to a larger audience. But, but the larger, I mean, the way I think about it is that the larger significance of, of what we do as curators uh, is to advocate for um an area of, of art history, um, and that's generally done through an area of uh, museum's collections. Mm-hmm. So that's, you know, that's, it's, it's taking care of what, of the patrimony of the institution, of what, what has been collected uh, for the last 100 plus years uh, in this area, and it's adding to that through acquisition, through purchase and gift, and uh, the related uh, areas of donor cultivation and fundraising, but it's also, of course, uh, one of the more flashy aspects of it is organizing and presenting special exhibitions um, and uh, sort of crafting the narratives around the art that you're putting on display. And that's also true in the the permanent collection galleries and that the permanent collection galleries are one of the areas um, uh, in general that I feel strongest about, especially at a venerable established institution um, like the Cincinnati Art Museum um, where we have a real responsibility to present uh, our collections at, at a very high level and to you know to 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 make 
the stories that we're telling and the real genius of, of each of these artworks and artists um, really accessible and, and apparent to, to the audience. Um, and then there's plenty of, of more mundane, you know, there's, there's, there's uh, administrative work. I mean, we're responsible for deciding whether or not to loan artworks from the collection to, uh, to other institutions. There's a lot of, uh, of, of very, there's a lot of work that goes around uh, cultivating relationships uh, outside of the museum, whether that's with educational institutions, as you well know, um, or with um, with other lending institutions, with other cultural institutions, both you know in Ohio, across the country, and for my area, especially in Europe. Um, so that's that can take the form of providing helping researchers in Belgium find out uh, what what we've gathered in our files over the years about a specific painting, or that can be helping, um, you know, the museum in San Francisco decide whether, whether they would like to show one of our paintings in an exhibition on an artist that they're organizing. Uh, so it's, it's really about being part of a community and being the voice for this museum within that larger uh, global community. Yeah. I, I just think it's, a lot of people, I'm glad you went into so much detail there because so many people really don't understand how much different parts of, of everyone's job really makes the museum run. Mm-hmm. Um, and, a, you know, I, I get people sort of asking me while I'm organizing other programs, they'll sort of just sort of casually go like, oh, and maybe if we could um, put out a painting about this at this time. <laughs> I just said, well, that's not what I do. Like, and that's that's like a kind of a big process. Yeah. Like, you don't under, like there, that's sort of a regular thing I run into is people certainly assume I have way more power than I do all the time. Like, I can't I don't have anything to do with that. Like, I don't get to I have zero say in what goes up on the walls, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they also I think they don't understand that those decisions are not are not quite as snap as maybe they might expect them to be. Like, yeah, that's right. I mean, I'm encountering that uh, that same issue right now, and I think you know we do we always do, but uh, there are finite human resources to move art. Also, if, as yeah. you, as you point out, if something goes up on the wall, that means something else has to come down generally, and there needs to be interpretive material, labels, um, maybe. If it's a painting, maybe it hasn't been cleaned in 50 years. Maybe yeah. it needs to be cleaned. Maybe the frame, it doesn't have a frame. Maybe we need to find a frame. Um, and then, you know, and, and everything shifts. And, and that's a big challenge also here, um, a great challenge, because the collection, particularly of European paintings uh, here in Cincinnati, is, is world-renowned. And so... Uh, with that renown comes a demand um, that our our colleagues put on us that uh, a lot of our paintings are requested for loan and f- to go to special exhibitions around the world. And when that happens, of course, there's a hole on the wall. Yeah. And, <laughs> and so things have to shift and come out of storage maybe or move around. And this all requires, you know, and then holes on the wall have to be painted and, you know, labels need to be made and it's... Uh, but you should. I hope you you feel um, you should feel like you have more power than than you say you do. You should just ask um, if there is <laughs> any opportunity uh, with with uh, you know learning and interpretation to 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 bring uh, 
different things into the galleries because you never know. There could be a hole yeah. on the wall someday. So. Yeah, that's true. I don't know. I think it's one of those also like with 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 a great power comes great responsibility. I'm <laughs> yeah. like, I don't know if I want that. Like, resp- <laughs> like I'm kind of happy to just sort of like, no, you you do that. You pick the stuff and I'll make up stuff to do about that stuff. You know, like I'm kind of okay with that order. I'm like, oh, I don't know. It's, it's a lot of pressure. And like you're saying, like, yeah, that's another aspect of it that, you know, people don't consider too, is like every time we move a work that's, that does affect like almost every department, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. um, it, 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 it has a trickle down effect where even there's the people who are directly involved and physically, you know, we don't just, again, you don't yourself walk down and just grab a painting off the wall. You know, we, we, we have a whole process of this stuff and we take it very seriously about how things are cataloged and we have to make sure we know where everything is. And so Mm -hmm. there's a whole system of, of moving art. Um, and then even, you know, the the way that has to get communicated around the building to mm-hmm. everybody so that we understand that that painting is no longer on view and when that visitor asks about right. that painting that we'll have to you know let them down easy um it's an ecosystem yeah. yeah so it does have like it it all of those decisions uh have a big effect and especially when you're talking about you know those major works uh mm-hmm. that people do come to see you know um and when you're talking about loans, that's something I think a lot of people also don't realize is how, you know, there's there's sort of a lot of almost like bargaining that goes on in that sort of loan. Like, OK, we're going to let you borrow this painting. And but that in turn offers us an opportunity to get some great paintings uh, here yeah, for an maybe exhibition. down the road. Or, yeah, it's it's about about preserving and, and re- relationships uh, in the end. But. You know, it, it's 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 tricky calculus because you don't want, you know, our our audience here in Cincinnati is very dedicated and mm-hmm. it's largely local, and you don't want someone to come uh, looking for a painting uh, uh, and find it gone. You know, m- more than half the time that they come, or yeah. so. So it's it, it's tricky, but uh, in the end, hopefully being open is is the best policy yeah. uh, both to our our visitors and to the people around the world that also want to see our masterpieces well um you were talking a lot about the the collection and that you admire it and so i was hoping we could go look at some works in the collection yes, yes. if you're okay with that i am more than okay with that that's okay the, that's the best part <laughs> do you have you have something already picked out you want to look at or uh yeah i thought uh I thought we could end up looking at uh, at the Zurbaran, um, as the Baroque Spanish painting that I've loved since before I came here. Um, but maybe we can sort of start in the 16th century gallery and just talk about painting a little bit generally. Sure. Yeah, I'm fine with that. Okay. All right, so right now we are in Gallery 202, um, and you said you didn't want to start with anything necessarily specific, or are we going to... Well, I just thought that we were here, I was walking through this gallery earlier, and and then, and and when you brought up um, my sort of uh, progress from working on sculpture to to now being here in Cincinnati and with a collection that the All-Stars are really paintings, uh, and I was thinking about that. so I'm standing in front of uh, a bronze statuette group uh, after a model by John Bologna um, from the late 16th century. A three, it's a three-figure group. 
uh, of the Rape of the Sabines, um, uh, Roman mythological subject. But when you're working with sculpture, uh, one of the great things is the the physical presence of it and the uh, both the tactility, um, but also how it exists. It really exists in space. Um, I like to think about uh, sculpture as an experiential art um, in the sense that you, you really have to either move yourself around it or turn the sculpture itself mm -hmm. in order to fully experience it. And especially beginning in the Italian Renaissance in the, in the 15th and 16th centuries, um, you know, sculptors took, took real advantage of this. And, and this statuette, um, this bronze statuette, is, is one of the really the, the highest forms of that, where there's no, the artist has made, made it so that there's no single perspective to, to view this from. You really have a satisfying play of forms and positive and negative space uh, right the way around um, from every angle that you encounter it. Yeah, that's true. I'm starting next uh, in September sketching tours. Oh, nice. And this would be a perfect piece for a sketching tour because of that, because every angle on this is, is a good... It's a good one, yeah. Yeah, whenever, you're do whenever I was doing figure drawing in school, you would always like... You would there would be a model who was really good at like capturing those poses that were good from every angle. Right. Because, Wherever you're sitting, yeah. Yeah, because yeah. you, you, you never want to be in that boring position where you're perfectly aligned with like the side of somebody where you're right. getting their like shoulder and they kind of, they flatten out and they're sort of nothing interesting to look at. Exactly. But. And here, John Bologna has, has anticipated that problem uh, that you bring up perfectly and uh, everything is in torsion. And all the all the different planes of the bodies are askew to one another, so that so that you have a satisfying experience when you go around it. But moving, I mean, moving more generally from sculpture to speaking about painting, um, the you know the one of the, the the areas that painting really supersedes sculpture, and this was a hotly debated topic in in this very time period in the in the in the sixteenth century. Um, uh, one of the areas that it, it, it excels is in, is in tricking us in, in the illusionistic effects that, that you can achieve um, with uh, depicting figurative and historical subjects mm -hmm. on canvas. Um, and, you know, this, this, has, this has various names. The Patagone is the, is the name for this debate in, in Italy in this period. But um, essentially, you know, starting in the 15th uh, century, uh, especially, and, and moving, moving through the Renaissance and Baroque periods in Europe, painters started to exploit this whole toolbox of um, techniques to use uh, depiction to really play games with the viewer. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and right next to the John Bologna bronze is, uh, is a painting by Simon Vouet, um, a French painter from about, it's about 50 years later than the sculpture was conceived uh, in the 1620s. And he, Vouet was active in Rome, uh, but then moved back uh, to France at the behest of the king. Uh, but this, this, uh, this picture to, uh, shows the toilet, it's, it's entitled The Toilet of Venus, so it's Venus sitting uh, on her bed and, and, and looking in a mirror with, with uh, uh, cherubs uh, around. Um, and this this painting really has a number of these these tricks going on. Um, first of all, the two the two uh, winged putti uh, to the right are pulling back a curtain 
to reveal uh, the goddess. And, and the trick there is that, you know, the, that a lot of paintings from this period would have actually been covered by uh, cloth draperies that you could then pull back to reveal the image. And here this is happening in the paint. Why would they be covered? Um, it, it, it's a lot about staging, um, mm -hmm. uh, sort of giving the owner of the painting the ability to 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 give its viewer this this aha moment. Okay, and and of course sometimes the subject matter. Um, this is this is a, a rather modest uh, portrayal of of a nude woman, but she's nude nonetheless. Um, so depending on whose company you keep at exactly, the moment, you exactly. can cover up your more scandalous paintings. Exactly. <laughs> and we have documents of, of this, this happening um, and, and, and really titillating the, the, the visitors to cardinals' palaces in Rome. Mm -hmm. who, who, yeah. But uh, with Vouet's painting, he, he's also playing on um, the topos, the theme of, of, of visuality in general, because Venus is looking into a mirror. So she's She's not looking at the viewer uh, of the painting, but she's looking into the mirror, and her reflection then seems to look out mm -hmm. at us through the picture plane. Um, so it's it's these these sorts of tricks that really make painting sort of the the queen of the arts um, in in the Western tradition. Um, and you know other other types of tricks like this are, are just the very basic ones of a of a painting being able to show two different moments in time mm. at the same moment. The uh, little panel attributed to Botticelli shows, uh, you know, Judith with the head of Holofernes, uh, and then in the background uh, of sort of a, a battle scene, which we, you know, can presume is the the Jewish people sort of routing the the Assyrian army that that was uh, that was led by Holofernes, and she has conquered the day by slaying this foe. Um, and there's a there's and so I, I this was sort of preamble to what I wanted to talk about with the <laughs> Zorberan. Although. Well, that I, I, that is fascinating. Something I've never really thought about is even having a like I've never thought of having a competition between painting and sculpture. Mm. That like you had like there has to be a winner. Oh yeah, that's this, such a bizarre idea. It was a it was an incredibly hot topic in as early as the 15th century and particularly in the 16th century with the. Uh, uh, Vasari weighing in and all of the great uh, sculptors and painters in Florence writing series of public letters to, to one another um, triumphing their chosen art and I like that that painting would be seen as the the better art because it's more deceptive too. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like, exactly. It's better at lying to us, right? So and, we like it more, and we love lying. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and visual puns. Uh, it's it, yeah. It says a lot about the <laughs> viewers. Right, of the right. Art. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So you want to go uh, go over to the Spanish gallery? That'd be great. Yeah. All right, so we have moved now to uh, Gallery 206, I'm pretty sure. It's the Spanish Painting yeah. Gallery. Um, <laughs> I knew these numbers fairly well. It's 206. 206. Yeah. yeah, I just uh, I had a moment of doubt, and then I was like, no, no, I know this. This is 206. <laughs> 206. Um, and, and here in Gallery 206, one of the, the largest paintings, and, and really one of my favorites in the collection, is... Um, is a, a, a painting by Francisco de Zurbaran, uh, the great Baroque uh, Spanish, southern Spanish painter. Um, 
and it's this is a, this is a, a complex painting in in many ways. I mean, there are a series of almost life-size figures displayed across the canvas um, in in sort of a marching order, um, uh, filling up most of the picture plane. Um, but uh, what what's going on is is what what's being depicted is what I really love, and that's um, uh, well, there's a lot of history to it, but but essentially the the man in white uh, white robes to the right is is Peter Nolasco, uh, who founded one of the mendicant orders in in the thirteenth century, so a contemporary of of um, of, um, of of some of the other of, of the other great holy men of that period but he is here shown discovering a miraculous image uh, that was that was hidden, that was buried in in a small town north of Valencia, uh, Puig, and and he's he's rediscovering it where it lay underneath a bell, and you see the bell tipped over in the foreground of the painting, and pre and, and he's presenting it to King James I of Aragon, um, who was at that at this very moment in the early 13th century, busy driving out the Moors, uh, the, the, uh, Spanish, the, the, the Islamic uh, Spanish um, residents of the Iberian Peninsula. And, and so this, this, this moment in, in time was uh, considered a, a real, this, this discovery was a, was a real boon to, to that effort. Um, and James goes on to build a monastery and a castle on this site. Um, so what, I, what connects us back to this whole theme, I guess, is that, is that this image, uh, which Zuberan has sort of depicted as a, a carving in stone. There's uh, a gentleman kneeling at the left is holding up this, what looks like a stone tablet with an image of the Virgin Mary and the Christ child um, and presenting it to the king. Um, but this was one of, a, one of a group of images um, throughout Christian history and, and earlier that were considered to have been made by divine intervention, that uh, they aren't the product of a human hand, as it were. So um, so here you have this artist, uh, Zuberan, at, at really at the heights of his, of his powers. Um, in uh, 1628 is the commission for this and 22 other paintings of this size. It would have been an astounding commission. Um, and he's, he's established himself as the greatest painter in Seville, one of the great cities of, of Spain. And he is here, he is, he's taking on the challenge of himself depicting, representing an image that was essentially created divinely, um, and doing that alongside depicting historical personages as important as the King of Aragon and Peter Nolasco, who had just, in the year of this commission, 1628, been canonized. So he's now a saint, and you can pick out a very thin halo above his tonsured mm. head, yeah. and that will tell you who the saint is. So there's this great play of, um, you know, what is, what is possible with paint. Uh, yeah, I never, th I would have never, I, 
I'll be honest, I did not know any of this story about this piece. It's a complicated story. Yeah. So I I had no idea this stone, you know, carving that he's presenting was supposed to be divine. That's Mm. so interesting. And it's also funny to me because then it's like the language of the divine is looks a lot like, you know, <laughs> the like, style of the day. Exactly. <laughs> looks a lot like a Baroque painting. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's kind of funny that, you know, yeah. you would think maybe God would make carvings that would be a little, a little more confusing to a human. <laughs> no, that's, that's, a good, that's a good point. And in some, in some periods in, in, uh, in history, they, there was a little bit more of an effort made yeah. uh, to sort of represent an image like this maybe as a as a much earlier style of painting. Right, yeah. But that's a good point. That, yeah, I mean, that Zerberan could... is here, he's, he's, he's comfortable with the style of his day to right. depict something that was inspired by... I, get, I guess in my mind, I go to sort of some sort of weird, like, Lovecraftian place where, like, when somebody uncovers ancient, uh, you know, art of the gods, it, it will probably drive someone mad. Right, right, <laughs> and right. It's right, going yeah. to be... And, and it will be described as, like, can, the, the geometry made no sense or something. <laughs> you know, that's how it, it always works in those kind of stories. So I'm just sort of like, yeah, that's kind of interesting. No, that, but that's, that's a really good point. And that's a lot of, you know, that... I understand that you know how that would come to mind, but we also have to think at this at this point. Uh, this is you know we're well into the into the Counter Reformation and and you know the the uh, and indeed sort of communicating to the masses right. the, the fundamental stories of Christianity are incredibly important to uh, painters and and their patrons. This painting, as I said, was one of. Uh, 22 of these enormous canvases commissioned for a monastery in Seville. Um, and, 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 you know, in that sense, they would have been 22 different episodes in the life of this recently canonized saint. Um, and in that sense, I think that the, the, the abbot of the monastery would have put a great premium on Zurbaran's ability to clearly communicate both, you know, the history of this saint, but also why why the faith is uh, it works through him and for him. So it, it's a uh, it, legibility was paramount. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, he has he does have to communicate in this painting that you know another image in stone. So mm-hmm. it, it probably makes sense that he he chose to do it in a pretty traditional way because he has to communicate that to the viewer. That's right. Pretty, in one image, what's going on? So. And I mean, also in the looking around this gallery and, and in the in the Dutch Golden Age gallery just outside, uh, you'll see some still lives, um, and that's another one of these great techniques uh, that artists use to use painting to trick the eye, um, and that goes also goes back to to uh, to ancient writings about painters that are able to to fool you into thinking that. Uh, there's a real fly on the wall or that, mm-hmm. uh, or that, you know, the, 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 there's a feast in front of you that you can actually eat, but it's just an image. So yeah. these are some of the things that draw me to painting. And I'm, uh, really glad to have, to have the opportunity to have this, this, this collection of paintings be my workshop. As it were. <laughs> so it sounds like, so in your mind, uh, painting is also one. <laughs> For now, for, for now. now, for now, I'm I'm a sculpture person, uh, you know, by, by training. But but I'm I'm very happy to have painting win for me today. <laughs> well, thanks for talking with me today, Peter. My pleasure, Russell. Thanks. 
Thank you for listening to Art Palace. We hope you'll be inspired to come visit the Cincinnati Art Museum and have conversations about the art yourself. General admission to the museum is always free, and we also offer free parking. Special exhibitions on view right now are A Shared Legacy, Folk Art in America, William Kintridge, More Sweetly Play the Dance, Tiffany Glass, Painting with Color and Light, and Anila Kayum Aga, All the Flowers Are for Me. If you'd like to come hang out with me in the gallery, sign up for Fandom, The Bachelorette on July 22nd. We're going to pick a lucky lady from the collection to be our bachelorette and then find her a suitable suitor from our gallery's eligible men. Who will get that final rose? For program reservations and more information, visit CincinnatiArtMuseum.org. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Snapchat. Our theme song is Offrande Musicale by Bacalao. I know I say this every episode, but this time I mean it. If you liked our show, please rate and review us on iTunes. It really helps others find out about us. I'm Russell Eyrig, and this has been Art Palace, produced by the Cincinnati Art Museum.